moment of transparency, if you'll allow me to, I want to share with you how sermons get written at Libby Christian Church. This is not true for every church everywhere. This is just the way I do it. It starts for me on Sunday nights. Now, there are some preachers that have their messages written weeks ahead of time. I'm not one of those preachers. It's a week-to-week thing for me, and it begins on Sunday nights. A typical message takes somewhere between 16 and 20 hours of research and writing to put together. This past week, when I was somewhere between 16 and 20 hours, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. I had been all through my Bible on the subject that I was looking at. I had looked at some other resources, and I had nothing. It's a fairly discouraging place to be for a preacher because there is always a clock ticking. There is always a deadline coming, and I had reached mine with nothing. So I sat down with a familiar friend. It's an interesting thing to call him that. We've never met. We've never shaken hands, but we've traveled a lot of miles together through the books that he has written. I have several authors that I follow that I consider friends, just like this man. There's a familiarity and a comfort that comes in sitting with their books, and oftentimes inspiration follows. I needed some inspiration. So I sat down with Max Lucado, and I just started reading. He has more often than not always led to that point of inspiration for me. And he did this week, just from an excerpt in one of his books. And I was reading randomly when I discovered this. I want to share it with you today. Listen closely to this. Christmas and gift-giving. The two have always been associated with each other for good reason. The Magi gave Jesus the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The shepherds gave Jesus the gift of their time and belief. Mary gave Jesus the gift of her womb. The offerings seemed practical. The wise men's treasures could be used to fund the family's escape to Egypt. The shepherds' visitation would keep the family company. Mary's womb would protect the growing child. But there is one gift that might appear a bit curious, the angel's gift of worship. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven, they sang, and peace on earth for all those pleasing him. When this great army of angels had returned again to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Come on, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. That's an excerpt taken out of the Living Bible from Luke chapter 2, Luke's telling of the Christmas story. The angels filled the night with light and the air with music, and well, that's it. They worshipped. Couldn't they have done something more useful? Mary could have used a bed. Joseph would have benefited from an angelic escort back to Nazareth. Baby Jesus needed a bassinet. These were angels. Didn't they know better? Then again, these were angels. Who knew Jesus better than they? Those who knew Jesus best loved him dearest. Those who followed him longest gave him the gift of worship. They placed their love on a pillow of praise and presented it to Jesus. They did that night, and they do still. One of the things that I have always appreciated about Lucado is his ability to help me look at the small things of Scripture. He shrinks my vision and helps me to see things in the Bible that I might otherwise pass over. And this past week, that's what he did for me. He helped me focus on the worship of the angels and see ways that it applies to our lives. Christmas brings that about for us 
if we will just pay attention. It will change our worship if we allow God to do that for us. Now, for a lot of people, that idea of worship being a gift, being an offering given to the baby Jesus, that's a foreign idea, typically because worship is a foreign idea. I had all kinds of thoughts about where I wanted to go after I had seen this, and I was looking for a number of different things, but finally just decided the basics of worship is where we need to be this morning if we want to really figure out what the angels did for the Lord. So if you'll stay with me today, I'm going to share with you the journey that I was on this past week, and hopefully it'll put you on one of your own. Let's start with a simple definition of what worship is. It comes from an old English word. Here it is. Worship comes from the old English word, we are Skype, which means to ascribe worth to someone or something. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, we all worship different things in our lives. If you were to go through all of the different components of your life, you may well find that you have worshipped things that you didn't know you worshipped. Some people worship houses, others worship possessions, or cars, or careers, or for some people, fantasies and even ideas can become an aspect of worship. Just this past summer, in the area around Libby, people were forced with a a situation that made them face this very idea. When the West Fork fire was burning and folks were being evacuated from their homes, people had to determine what was of the most importance to them. What would they take out of their houses? What would they work to save? What might they run back through flames to rescue? For some people, they found that there were objects of worship that they never realized existed because they didn't know that they had ascribed so much worth to those possessions, or to their home, or to fill in whatever blank. That is true for all of us as we make our way through life. There are things that we ascribe worship to, but the truth of the matter is, God is the only one worthy of worship. God is the only one worthy of worship. Other things can be important to you, but God is the only one worthy of worship. And the angels knew that. And they brought that gift before the Lord. Right at the very first Christmas, they showed us how to do it. What an amazing thing. And God knew they would. Now let me show you why I believe that. We've been spending a lot of time in the book of Hebrews these past few weeks as we've been looking at the Advent season. We're going to do that again today. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Now we've only been reading the first four verses and we've kind of put a bookend after that. We're today going to push past that bookend, only by two verses. But in order to set the stage, let's go back through some familiar territory. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I love the way the writer of Hebrews tells the Christmas story. 
Now push past that point with me into verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, listen, let all God's angels worship him. What happened in the fields out over the shepherds was never a surprise to God. Not ever. God said before Jesus was ever born that the angels would worship. That would be their gift. That's what they would bring to him. I love the fact that the shepherds brought their gift and the wise men brought their gift, but you have to appreciate what the angels brought because they had ascribed value to Jesus. Now, this wasn't a shock to anybody, including God. It wasn't that he was prophesying something new or predicting something that had never happened. Not at all. What took place out in that field was second nature to the angels. Because you see, all the way through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, we find angels in worship. We find them singing in praise to God. And oftentimes, it elicits responses from humanity when we see what they have done. It challenges us, it pushes us, and it can change us. Let's go back to the Old Testament. We'll start there. I'll show you one of those examples of worship. And in the process, you'll even get to hear how they worship. We're going to go to the book of Isaiah. Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're only going to read seven verses, but they are powerful. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. A little later on, I'll show you exactly how it was that Isaiah saw this. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Absolutely beautiful picture. Listen to the words of the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the song of the angels when they worship. They are ascribing value to God and it is a value that belongs to no one else. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But what happens to the prophet is the most spectacular thing to me. Given the chance to see this type of pure, unadulterated worship coming from the hearts of the angels as it is given to God, changed him. It changed him in the deepest of ways. Isaiah said, woe is me. Hold it. I can't look upon this without looking upon myself. I can't look upon this type of worship without realizing things about myself. 
And what he realized as he details it in Isaiah chapter 6 is amazing. Listen to it again. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Boil that down in the midst of the situation that he's in, and here's what you find. Isaiah is saying, I am looking upon these angels, worshiping God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and I can't do that. My lips don't allow me to do that because I've not treated God that way. I've not placed that type of value on him. I am a man of unclean lips, unable to worship in my current condition. And then this miraculous thing happens. An angel picks up a coal burning in the the censer in front of the altar of God and flies over to Isaiah with it in tongs and touches his lips and says, now that's changed. From that point forward, Isaiah the prophet had to carry chapstick with him everywhere he went. He had scabs on his lips. He had ripples on his lips. They would have been there forever to remind him of what he had witnessed. Every time he licked his lips, you know he had to think of what he had witnessed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because God healed his mouth. God changed his lips, changed his tongue. Because of what he saw. The song that he would sing in worship after that had to have been so personal. It had to have been. And that's the way songs of worship are for us. They are incredibly personal. After you have experienced pure worship in its best form, and you have been changed as a result of it, and you begin to ascribe value to Jesus, your song becomes personal. We sang a personal song just a few minutes ago. I hope you were listening to it as you were mouthing those words. If you weren't, take a look at them again. Here they are. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. We sing it loud. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross He sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy, he the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer, his triumphant power I'll tell, how the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love to me. He from death to life hath brought me, Son of God with him to be. That's a personal song of worship that comes from the lips of those that have seen Jesus, that have been touched by him. We will sing of our Redeemer as he has changed us. Just like Isaiah afterwards would have sang with maybe even a lisp from burnt lips, he was singing of his Redeemer, the one who saved him. That is a personal song that no one else can sing for you. That is a unique song given to your situation because the things that God has redeemed you from are different than what he has redeemed me from. The things that God has redeemed you from differ from what he redeemed the person next to you from. That's why it's so personal. Sing the song of your Redeemer. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He has changed your life. He has changed your life. That personal story becomes the essence of your worship and the gift that you give to God. You may not know what that looks like, so let me show you. Let's go back to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. Wonderful story here. 
Stay with me as we go through this. We'll pick up in verse 1. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now, the beauty of this account is the entire path that Jesus takes her on. There are at least three stops. Follow me through each one of them. We'll do this real fast. The first statement that he put in front of her, give me a drink. Now really, all that was was a conversation starter. As if Jesus were looking at her saying, hey, how you doing today? He said, give me a drink. He was opening up the lines of communication and you saw the whole conversation. It was pretty cool. All of that started with, give me a drink. He wasn't saying to her, I need water. He didn't. He had the ability to draw it himself. He just wanted to open things up. God has opened up conversations with you in different ways and at different times. That's what he just did with this lady. And he led her all the way through to the point of understanding what living water is. It was still a little bit confusing, so Jesus took her to another point, and they made a huge stop when he said, go get your husband. Everything became personal right there. So he opened the conversation and then he made it very personal. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, no, in fact, you don't. I know what your life is like. 
You know that had to stop her right in her tracks. She'd never seen this man before. And he knows something of her life. I know what's going on with you. Go get your husband. You don't have a husband, so let's you and I sit here and talk about it. So after he opened the door and got personal with her, he showed her what worship looked like. He said, you don't have to go to church every Sunday to worship. You need to develop a relationship with God that allows you to worship everywhere. Don't go just to Jerusalem or on this mountain, but learn how to worship in spirit and in truth. Bring together the two most important aspects of your life so that you can truly worship. What he was saying was true worship involves your mind and your heart. You cannot worship in a pure way using only one of those. If all you ever do is use your intellect, listen to me, listen closely, you will miss the depth of the relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. If you only worship using your mind, you will miss the depth of the relationship. And if you worship only with your heart, you will miss the consistency of the relationship. Believing that somebody else must provide for you experience after experience after experience in order for you to feel close. But when you bring the two together, you are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you may say, I don't know that I can do that. Because sometimes, just like Dini was talking about in his prayer, sometimes things aren't good. Sometimes it doesn't feel to me like I should worship. Sometimes I'm dealing with things that are very difficult and very hard, and I wonder where God is. And am I really supposed to worship? The answer is yes. Let me show you how I know that. We're going to go back to the Old Testament again, to the book of Job. If you are familiar with that book, you know that Job is an illustration of suffering and grace like few other you'll ever find in the Bible. Conversation happened between God and Satan about Job. Satan had been wandering the earth. God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, yeah, I've considered him. Man is blessed. So yeah, he walks close to you because you've blessed him. But remove some of those blessings. Let's see what he's really made of. Let's find out what kind of grit he has. And God said, all right, do it. I'll move the boundaries. You can touch his life. And touch his life he did. Satan took everything from him. Now, God allowed it by moving the boundaries, but Satan took everything from him. 20 verses into the first chapter of the book of Job, Job has lost his business, he has lost his family, his children, their spouses, his grandchildren. The only one that is left is his wife. In chapter 2, he will lose his health. And in the 20th verse of chapter 1, this is what we read. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. He worshipped. Even when everything was falling apart, he chose to ascribe value to God. He chose to say, God is still on his throne, no matter what I am struggling with, this relationship is intact. And he worshipped. That's what happens when we bring together our mind and our heart and we worship in spirit and in truth. The consistency of the relationship rises out of the ashes and we worship. Something comes from us given to God as a gift. That's what Job was doing and that's what the angels were teaching. That type of worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, I was sent here by the Father to find people that will worship like that. I was sent here by the Father to find people that will be honest in their worship and will stay with me no matter what. 
I was sent here by the Father to find people that understand the totality of worship, spirit, and truth, mind and heart coming together so that we can really know Him, so that we can really be with Him. In order for us to do that, we have to discover a few other things about worship, like the theology of it, how it works. Interestingly enough, the angels teach us the theology of worship. Theology is the study of God, the science of God. The theology of worship is the study of worship and how it works. And it only requires the angels to show us. Let's go to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, the fourth chapter. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle John writes these words. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now stop there with me for just a second. I told you a few minutes ago that I would show you how Isaiah was able to see what he saw in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the same way John saw it in John chapter 4. There was a door open into heaven, and they were allowed to look in. From time to time, whether you realize it or not, God opens doors for us to look into heaven. We get to see different things. And after we've seen them, the door goes closed. But for those that have looked into heaven and saw it for what it really was, you're never the same afterwards. John was never the same. Isaiah was never the same. His life was changed. John's life was changed. And your life can be changed when you look through the doors of heaven that God cracks open for you. Here's what happened for John. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, listen, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the song of the angels, just as you heard it from the book of Isaiah. But in Revelation chapter 4, they add the theology of worship, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The angels are teaching. Pay attention. The theology of worship says that we have to understand three things about God if we're going to be pure in our worship. The first is this, and we've talked about it for several weeks. The angels sum it up with these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was. He was. Jesus was with God from the very beginning. 
And like I said, we've talked about that for several weeks. I don't want to go back through dirt that we've already plowed. You can go online and listen to that if you haven't been here. Jesus was there from the very beginning. But then the angels add this, and this is wonderful. Not only was he, but he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So if Jesus was there in the beginning, and we know, as we do from reading the Bible, that he's coming back, and we hang our hat on that, and if you have never hung your hat on the fact that Jesus is coming back, I want to talk to you about that. He is coming back for his church, and he is coming back bringing in a a day of judgment on all of the earth except those that have believed in him. I want to talk to you about that, but not today. It's that center part that matters. He is. Jesus is. There is a popular belief in churches today that Jesus came as a man. God came as a man. He lived for 33 years. He was murdered on the cross and he was buried. And today he is around the throne of heaven. That popular belief leaves out the most important part of the crucifixion story. He rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, Jesus isn't just in heaven waiting for that time to come back. He is with us right now, right here. He is part of our lives. And that causes you to say then, not only he is, but who is he? Who is he to you? Is he the God that you put in a box and sit on a shelf and pull it down on Sunday mornings and that's all you ever do with him? Is he the God that you scream to in the midst of crisis and trial? Or is he your personal Savior and the one that you have a relationship with? If that is the case, you have relationship with him, then worship, like as it is for the angels, will become for you not just your second nature, but your first nature. And you will worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And worship will be a part of everything you do. Worship will be a part of every day, every moment, as you have the opportunity to see the things of God at work in your life, as the doorway of heaven is cracked open and you're allowed to see that and His love pours out on you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the song of the redeemed. That's the song of those that have been changed. That's the song of the angels. But here's the problem for the angels. They can't understand redemption. So they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they have all the theology, but they don't have the practicality of it. The practicality of worship is what comes from us when we have been touched, when we have been touched by the Lord, when we have brought together spirit and truth and we have said, here I am, Lord, use me, take me, change me, mold me. Turn me into who you want me to be. That's the practicality of worship. Interestingly, the Christmas story teaches us that. Different than any other place in the Bible, the Christmas story teaches us that. Let's go back to some of the gifts that were brought. Lucado talked about them just as we got started, but you can see it all through the Christmas story. Of course, the angels were there. They were singing. The shepherds went to visit Joseph and Mary, and they brought their time and their belief, according to Max, their time and their belief. Then you have the the wise men who brought the monetary gifts. What the shepherds brought and the, the wise men brought are things that we do in corporate worship. Those are all good things, valuable things, things that we need, and they become a lifeline for us. But Joseph and Mary did something completely different. 
They offered the real practicality of worship. They offered a surrendered worship before the Lord where they gave them everything they have. Joseph, let's just start with him. Joseph was a man of reputation. He had a career in Nazareth. His home was there. His family was there. He was in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, and Joseph gave up everything in worship. I want you to think about who he was in Scripture. This is, this is really the significance of this, particularly for every man that's sitting here. Joseph was not just a carpenter. The Bible says he was the carpenter. That's how he's referred to. When they were talking about Jesus, the Pharisees would say, isn't he the carpenter's son? Joseph was good at what he did. His career was important to him, but he walked away from it. He just walked away from it. Went to Egypt, protected by God, fueled by God, funded by God, but he walked away from the things that matter the most to a lot of men, things that men, if we're not careful, can worship. Joseph walked away from it. He walked away from his home, his family, everything he knew, all of the familiar. He said, I will do that because God asked me to. That is surrendered worship. Mary, of course, offered her body, her womb. She said, I will allow this to happen. Please do it. What a huge gift that was. That was amazing in and of itself. They discovered, Joseph and Mary did something that the Apostle Paul would tell us all to discover. This is found in Romans chapter 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I don't really like it, so let me just tell you what the New International Version says. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, for this is your, pay attention, spiritual act of worship. It is your spiritual act of worship. That comes from a total surrender. And that is the gift that Jesus said he came here seeking people that were willing to give it. People that were willing to say, here I am. I don't just want a mind form of worship or a heart form of worship. I want to bring those together and wrap them up in a spiritual act of worship. A surrendered act of worship. Joseph and Mary show us exactly what it looks like. All we have to do is follow their pattern. The spiritual act of worship, it is holy and pleasing to the Lord. And Jesus said, I came seeking people just like that. I came seeking people that would be willing to do that. Mary was one of those people. Joseph, one of those people. Changed after the Lord opened the door for them. Changed after they saw the things of heaven. Pretty cool when that happens. Mary did something equally cool after Jesus was in her womb. She sang in worship. In Luke chapter 1, we have the record of that song. It's called Mary's Song of Praise, but it has another name as well. This comes from the Latin. It is called the Magnificat. The Magnificat. It simply means to magnify. Mary starts out in her song in verse 46 of chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She magnified the Lord. That's what worship does. It magnifies God over and above everything else in our life. And when it is pure and it is the song of the redeemed, it resonates in heaven to shake the doorpost. That type of worship is amazing. That's what the angels brought before the Lord. That's what the angels taught us. That type of worship. 188 times in the Bible, 
singing is equated with worship. Singing. Now, there are other forms of worship. We've already looked at those. There's all kinds of forms of worship, but singing seems to really matter to God. You might say, I I can't sing. I, I don't like that whole idea. I can't sing. I can't sing. I understand your pain. I am married to a woman who can sing. How embarrassing do you think that is for me when we are standing next to each other in worship? She can sing and I can't carry a tune in a 55-gallon barrel, not just a bucket, in a 55-gallon barrel. Well, years ago, we figured out how to do this together, how to worship together. She sings loud and I sing loud and we love each other. That's it. That's it. If you don't sing and that's foreign to you, you are robbing, you are robbing God of what he desires the most because it is there where you will magnify the Lord, where you will give him the praise that he is due, where you will put him over and above everything else in your life and you will sing the song of the redeemed. You need to ask yourself, who is he to you? You need to answer that question. You need to figure it out. We all have to so that you can sing in worship and bring it as a gift before the Lord, just like the angels did. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're going to invite you to stand and join us in worship, following what the psalmist would say in Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. If you have been undone, by the things of God, this song will resonate with you. And I invite you to sing it in worship. My encouragement to you is don't be timid.